0: My name is Nicholas Danforth, and I'm an editor at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. Earlier this week, Germany's vice chancellor offered a cautiously optimistic assessment of his country's success in transitioning away from Russian natural gas. The New York Times reported that European natural gas prices have fallen to below their pre-war levels, and Sweden announced plans to build new nuclear power plants. Here to discuss Europe's ongoing quest for energy security is Dr. Emily Holland, assistant professor in the Russian Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. Welcome back to the Warcast.
1: Great to be back. So we have a lot of
0: news coming out from the past week. Give us a sense of where Europe stands right now.
1: Well, Europe has been very, very lucky there have been um, exceptionally and extraordinarily, although perhaps maybe this is just the new norm due to climate change, warm temperatures across the continent, basically all fall and now deep into winter. Um, This is very lucky and as a result, it's pushed natural gas prices and natural gas futures down to pre-war levels, right? So um, it's, it's, it's dropped significantly. However, I would caution uh but that by saying that natural gas actually remains still four times more expensive than it did in 2021. And volatility could resume at any moment with you know a cold snap like the one the US experienced just before Christmas. So so they've been very successful and lucky because of this this warm weather, but it doesn't mean everything's fine. Sort of what has happened is that that warm weather has allowed all of the policies that Europe has been pursuing over the past few months, um, such as reaching out to alternative suppliers, um, really working hard to fill gas storage tanks and reducing consumption, it's allowed all of those things to work and not required Europe to draw down on their storage that they then can't refill. So so Europe's in a pretty good point right now for this winter. Their storage remains high. They're not drawing it down too much. And they've still got, you know, um, ability to replace that because they have not been using so much energy.
0: And what, tell us a little bit more about the measures they've been taking. I know you've outlined some of these when we've talked to you before. Which ones have proved the most successful Um, And what are the impacts of these policies, even when they are working on consumers, on industry?
1: Sure. So I think the the biggest one is that, you know, in the wake of Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, they decided they needed to seek out alternative suppliers. So they started doing things like buying liquefied natural gas from a variety of suppliers. That are not Russia, although Russia is still sending liquefied natural gas to Europe. So um, from all different suppliers, including the United States, they're buying more natural gas from Norway. They've turned to North Africa. So there have a whole bunch of different suppliers now uh, bringing liquefied natural gas to Europe. In addition, there's been a serious uh, reduction, so consumers are reducing their consumption of gas, they're saving. Um, the, the reductions mainly are coming from industry, and that's a sort of second point that we can talk about in a minute. Um, and then, of course, they are building new infrastructure. So Germany's building new LNG terminals, right, to enable it to buy liquefied natural gas as opposed to relying on uh, Russian pipeline gas. So. They're doing things like there's sort of a historic EU agreement to uh, buy gas together. That's always been a problem for the EU. Basically, they've had a trouble sort of agreeing on common energy policies. But uh, this invasion and this crisis has really spurred a lot of cooperation in the EU. So there's a lot of innovation and just like a ton of, 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 of resilience building that, that Europe is trying to do now in the wake of this crisis. And, and it's worked um, uh, in concert with this with this very warm weather.
0: Let's talk about what this has meant for industry, what these cuts have meant for German manufacturing.
1: Sure, so basically all over Europe, Energy intensive industries and that's things like uh, steel, chemicals, fertilizer, but even things like glass or tile manufacturers have been really hurt by extremely high energy prices because these firms are reliant on a lot of energy. They need gas furnaces basically burning at all times. So what's had to happen is that they've had to reduce their their production. Um, across a lot of different industries. So some indus- industries have basically shut production entirely. Uh, fertilizer production is down in Germany significantly. Fertilizer production in Poland is basically offline for the past few months. Um, and then other industries are basically just surviving due to government handouts, due to government subsidies. So Europe has has handed out over 700 billion euros in industrial subsidies um, over the past six months. And so they're trying to shield those those companies from from basically going out of business. Now, this is a real issue because despite the fact that Europe's of handling all of these things fine and there's there's a there's a there's a nice heat wave which is helping them, it doesn't solve any problems structurally, right? So what tends to happen when industry faces high costs is it doesn't come back. So once it leaves it's hard to come back. So the last time that we had really historically high energy prices was 2008 and Europe lost about 30% of its energy intensive infrastructure industries, and it left and it didn't come back. So for, for European industry right now, they have to survive, but the really the question is for them is they have to innovate or they will die. They have to find a way to basically keep producing while using less energy. Um, Sometimes that'll be like things like maybe they'll stop producing one particular type of thing and they'll focus on another type of thing, or it might be that they have to shut certain types of production, or maybe they can find a way to transition to green energy technologies and find a way to um, get government subsidies to do that. But that takes a little while, and and the worry is that this deindustrialization will happen in Europe and will shift, other areas of the world that aren't facing these high commodity prices like say asia or the middle east
0: now what about the nuclear side of this
1: well nuclear has experienced a a pretty big renaissance over the last uh, few months now that's not without growing pains of course um sort of europe's poster boy for nuclear france has had huge problems um in terms of maintaining uh their 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 nuclear energy infrastructure um uh, edf france's State company has been working very hard to sort of bring that offline after a lot of it had to go offline this summer due to maintenance and other sort of safety issues um, but now they're you know European countries are really thinking and seeing okay we need to manage this energy transition and only one way to do that without sort of prohibitive costs and to sort of manage the bridge between the the zero carbon green energy future and today is to go nuclear so of course we have a lot of new nuclear plants coming online. We have countries uh, seeking to build new energy, to build new nuclear plants. Of course, the problem with that is, is that building nuclear power plants takes a very long time. Uh, usually, takes about a decade to even negotiate um, because of safety, because of all sorts of issues. And you know, over the last decade or so, most of the Western firms got out of the nu- that got out of the nuclear civilian power plant business because there was no interest in it and of course the 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 one company that did not do that was Rosatom which is Russia's nuclear power agency so they sort of quietly took over the market over the past 15 years moving beyond the west of course now Rosatom is not you know um uh, everybody's first choice to build a nuclear power plant they are they are building power plants in Turkey Egypt India China sort of all throughout the global south but in Europe uh, that is not going to be the choice of who would build nuclear power plants so you're you're looking at sort of was it South Korea that might be providing those those power plants is it France um the UK maybe even the US right so so there is a little bit of a renaissance but nuclear is not a not a quick fix right this is where you're looking at a decade uh, to get sort of the the amount that you need online. So it's not, not a quick fix, which is why Europe is sort of in this difficult problem right now that's been ameliorated by warm weather, but, you know, that it's not a solution. And I think what's important to remember for Europe, and, and you're seeing a lot of sort of jubilant articles like, oh, Europe saved the day, it's energy secure. Well, a mild winter is not energy security, nor is it energy policy. Right. So you have to really make sure that you're not being complacent because a cold snap could sort of disrupt all of the, the the work that's gone into increasing Europe's energy resilience.
0: And are there other factors besides a cold snap that people should be worried about that could disrupt this?
1: Well, of course, I mean, it's I hate to say it, but, you know, Europe is still buying Russian gas. Russian gas is still coming into Europe. Um, that could be disrupted. Uh, Critical infrastructure is, of course, even more critical than ever, right? Because energy markets and particularly gas markets are going to remain tight globally for several years. That means that sort of any disruption to the way Europe gets its gas now could be really, really serious. So, um, you know, Europe and, and, and sort of Northern European navies in particular are paying a lot of attention to protecting critical infrastructure. Of course, there are sort of other global factors which may uh, cause problems for Europe. Um, you know, now that China has has rescinded its one one you know nice zero COVID policy. We anticipate that Chinese demand for commodities will increase over the next year. So what does this do to prices, right? Does this increase prices again? Now there's gonna be more competition for for that gas that's floating around the market. So if there's competition, can Europe still afford to get it? Or or is it gonna be pulled in other directions? So, There's all sorts of different things that could happen and Europe still really needs to be careful to, to sort of minimize demand and maximize supply alternatives. Of course, there are sort of all political things that could happen, you know, who knows what would happen in the US political system. So it's important to remember that, you know, Europe is, is not out of the woods by by any stretch of the imagination. They've been very lucky, but they need to continue a serious amount of innovation and a serious amount of, of working at energy policy to try to sort of build a, a, a future for Europe that is beyond uh, Russian energy.
0: One final question, since you mentioned infrastructure security. Last time we had you on here, it was in the immediate aftermath of the Nord Stream explosion. What's the latest news on that?
1: It's actually interesting. I mean, the latest news is basically no news. Um, uh, There was an article that came out recently that showed that there was no evidence that conclusively points to Russia as being responsible for the attacks on Nord Stream 2. But the problem is that it's very, very hard to conclusively attribute to acts to any one perpetrator, right? So even if forensics and and Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and the U.S. have been investigating the explosion using forensics, such as tracing the type of explosives, et cetera, um, so even if forensics were able to determine, say, for example, that some elements present in the explosive were manufactured in I don't know, say the Soviet Union at some point, there's still no way to directly attribute that to Russia or anyone else. Right. So it's always circumstantial at best. And I think that's probably the best we're going to get out of this investigation. I don't think it's going to be I really don't think it's going to be possible to conclusively attribute the attacks to everyone, which is. Probably by design, right? So, so the best thing that the West could do, um, in the face of this sort of non-attributional attack, which is, is really just to increase the resilience of remaining infrastructure. And sort of, I guess you could say the one silver lining of this attack is that now, uh, navies and governments are really paying attention to a whole host of critical infrastructure, um, in regards to energy, communication, all sorts of things. So. For example, Norway is investing in surveillance, increasing naval patrols with the UK, France, and Germany to try to find maybe other ways to distribute oil and gas in case of a disruption. So, so that's good because this was a, a problem for a long time that wasn't really been paying attention to. So now hopefully they can they can really pay attention to just how critical this infrastructure is. And, and given it, like I said, how tight the market for all these commodities will be over the next few years, um, these these pieces of infrastructure are really important to protect.
0: Thank you once again for joining us.